Stand with us in caring for our veterans. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Good evening to you. Another edition of Beyond the Bricks along with Mike Thompson. My name is Jay Query. How are you? Historian Emeritus Donald Davidson will join us on the program in about 15 minutes tonight as well as we are talking, continuing our, continuing, I should say, our conversation from last night about We'll call it the British invasion, but it was more than that. But the drivers from the 60s, from a Grand Prix standpoint, that came over to Indianapolis for a number of different reasons. Engines wanted to um, maybe be tested, but mostly the tire companies saying, hey, we want to try this driver or that driver uh, coming over to test their luck at IMS. But what we failed to mention yesterday, which was totally 1,000%, I guess you'd say, my fault, Because although this time of year, I start to lose track of what days we're in in May. It's like, well, I know it's May, but is it May 5th, 15th, or 25th? Hell, I don't know. They all run together. It all just becomes a blur. And that particularly becomes the standpoint starting tomorrow when cars are on track, obviously qualifying for the Grand Prix. Then that takes place on Saturday. And then next week, Tuesday through Friday, practice. It all runs together. But completely forgot that and it's hard to believe very hard to believe that a significant mark in the annals of the world's greatest race courts the two and a half mile oval at 16th and georgetown in indianapolis was 25 years ago yesterday it was 25 years ago yesterday when the bird treadway racing machine the renard ford cosworth of ra Lyondike set the four fastest qualifying laps in the history of the event. And so right off the top, I figured, why not seize the opportunity to listen in to the man who sat on the mic for 61 years as the public address announcer of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the former WRTV sports director, Tom Carnegie, describing the laps as they ticked off for Ari Leyendijk, who gave us four good ones. And we begin tonight's show with this. Track record. And the top of the 
might try to do this. And here he is, halfway through this qualification. It's a new track record. 236.948 miles an hour, 37.983. He's halfway through. Already off the floor on the main straightaway. Ari Lyadike looks at Grace. What is interesting about that, Mike Thompson, is twofold. Number one, people outside of Indianapolis would say, why did I just, why are people listening to just a car sound and a guy's voice for two and a half minutes to open a radio show? Because both of them, quite frankly, are absolutely music to the ears for fans this time of year. But, Mike, the reality is, for those that may be unfamiliar, 25 years ago yesterday, Ari Leyendijk's effort that landed him at 236.986 is the fastest four-lap average in the history of the event, but it did not win him pole position. Explain. Uh, he had been disqualified on pole day. Uh, the car was a little bit overweight, and when it went through tech, it ended up being the, his the car that he qualified on pole day was disqualified and so he lost his um, his qualified car and so he had to come back the next day on sunday and qualify he was no longer eligible for the pole due to the rules but obviously he was eligible to you know break the track record which he did he actually that morning in practice was even faster than the the, the speed that he put up in the four lap average i think he was at 237.5 and change i forget what it was five six eight or something like that uh, somewhere around there um but yeah it was a it was a situation where the car was just a little bit uh overweight on on pole day he was then the car was disqualified so he had to come back and do it on sunday with a much uh smaller crowd and you know he put it he was the first car out on sunday and and broke the record and and we got to hear those magic words from uh, Tom Carnegie. It's a new track record. Uh, I can't do it nearly the justice. I won't try to do any kind of imitation there because I can't do it the way you do it, Jake. But 
you know, it's, it was an unbelievable number, and it's it's still the record to this day. And it, you know, the the funny thing about it is, of course, Leyendike. In that year, it would be a, another year before he actually would go on to win uh, his second Indy 500. But very cool for that to be 25 years ago yesterday. Um, Mike, let's go back and rehash a little bit before we, we get to Donald uh, talking about last night's topic. For those that were not with us, we had a lot of fun. I know you did talking about Jim Clark and also Graham Hill, who we heard from yesterday. But they were just kind of the start, along with Sir Jack Brabham, of a wave of drivers that became really, really key personalities over the course of this race. Well, I I think what was interesting about that, and I think we touched on it a little bit last night, was just the amazing talent that came to Indianapolis in that era. And it wasn't just the British slash Grand Prix invasion. I mean, we had, you know, stars from NASCAR coming. I mean, Cale Yarborough was there. Leroy Yarborough was there. Uh, you know, we had obviously the the Grand Prix stars were there, and and I mean by Grand Prix stars, I mean I'm talking about the top top. I mean it would be as if if the if the top ten basically stars of what we know now as Formula One all came this year, uh, because you had you know Clark, you had Hill, you had Denny Hume, you know you had you know uh, Pedro Rodriguez was there, you know you, uh, Richie Ginther was there, Chris Amon was there. Uh, Lucian Bianchi was there. I mean, so you had, I mean, these were huge, huge names who all came uh, at the same time. So it was, it was really an interesting, uh, that's why, again, I, I mentioned it, I think last night, how much I think the 1967 field is, is the greatest field of all time, because, you know, it's, it's really a, an international race of champions sort of field, because you have the great stars of USAC, you have the great stars of of Grand Prix racing. You have a couple of the great stars of NASCAR, you know, all together in this, in one great field, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's just, to me, it's just an amazing group of people who, who didn't make that race. You know, when you look at the guys who didn't make the race, you know, a, a Mastin Gregory, a Chris Amon, you know, uh, Peter Rodriguez, we mentioned, uh, Richie Ginther, these are all guys who didn't make the 500 that year. And these are all major, major stars. So I just think that it was just an amazing, amazing time. And I would have loved to have been there. Uh, people ask me all the time, you know, what year would you like to have gone back and seen? I mean, I'd love to have seen my hero, Jim Clark win. I would have loved to have seen some of the early, early races, but I really would have loved to have been there, you know, for 1967 to be able to see, all this amazing talent in one place at in gasoline alley there will be mike um if everyone is to qualify and you always have to give that disclaimer but if everyone is to qualify in this year's indianapolis 500 there will be nine former winners in the field and in 1967 there were nine indianapolis 500 winners in the field five of them being future winners four being winners at the time in which they were entered aj foyt parnelli jones uh, as well as Jim Clark and Graham Hill. To your point, which I think is a really good one, you look at the last five in terms of the box score of the 1967 Indy 500. Wally Dallenbach, Mario Andretti, Jim Clark, Graham Hill, Lloyd Ruby. <laughs> uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find any year, right, that has that kind of stout nature in terms of finishing places 29 through 33. Yeah, it's a, it's hard to do better than that in your in your lineup. So. Uh, it just shows you what a great field it really was. And, I mean, that's not to mention, you know, guys we're not even talking about who were, you know, race winners. I mean, Roger McCluskey. I mean, these are 
you know, these are talent, star talent guys that we're not even we're not even really talking about. Jim McElreath, who won the first, you know, Ontario 500. I mean, Jim McElreath finished fifth, and we're not we're not even talking about him. Uh, Joe Leonard, who won the championship twice, Joe Leonard finished third in the in the 67 500. These are these are top top names, and it's just an it's just an, it was an amazing amazing field in my opinion. There were those drivers that came to Indianapolis like a duck to water. Graham Hill obviously is one that comes to mind of that era, who immediately found success and found themselves at comfort. Mike, the reality is there were also those who had come over that were Formula One world champions or have that on their resume that. 108 laps into the 1967 Indianapolis 500, all of a sudden there's a valve issue and a guy finds himself on the sideline. And you claim it led to the greatest interview in IMS radio history, correct? I think it's, I mean, if if I had to pick my favorite random IMS radio moment of all time, this would be it. Okay, set because, the scene I for mean, me. Well, you have... When you think, I mean, obviously there's all the great calls and, you know, we all know all the great calls, you know, Paul Page and Bob Jenkins. I'm talking about just the most random things. This is the most random interview I think that ever happened on the IMS radio network. And it's it's always been one of my favorite things to set a quick scene for you. When I was a kid, my uncle Ron, who I told you about several times, he, he really got me into into the 500. He told me about this interview when I was a kid. And he, word for word, was able to tell me about this interview. And I was a kid, and I told him, I said, there's no way that happened, Uncle Ron. And, you know, you're, you're skeptical as a kid. But I said, there's no way this happened the way you're telling me. And when I finally found a copy of the interview, darn it if Uncle Ron wasn't completely 100% right. And he, word for word, nailed the entire context of the interview and, and said everything as if he had the script right in front of him. It was just amazing how, how he recalled it. Uh, Luke Walton, if you if you've listened to any of the old broadcasts with Sid, Luke Walton basically had two questions, and his first question was, "What put you out?" Because he would typically interview the drivers who had dropped out of the race. His first question would typically be, "What put you out?" And his second question would be, "Are you coming back next year?" Uh, Luke would Luke would probably get roasted a little bit on Twitter today if if Luke was doing the broadcast because. Luke never asked, hey, are you going to Milwaukee? You know, what are your plans for the rest of the season? There were never any questions like that from Luke. Luke was, he basically had two questions, and it was going to be those two. And so at this point, uh, Sid Collins threw down to Luke Walton, and Luke had the um, honor of talking to future world champion. He, he wasn't world champion yet. He would win the world championship posthumously in 1970. But he had the opportunity to talk to Jochen Rint. And here is how that interview went in the 67-500. Out of the center pit again, here's Luke Walton. And Sid, I have Jochen Rent here in the center pit. Jochen, you've been having some difficulty here for about the last half hour in the car. What was the matter? Uh, I think I lost the piston ring first, and then the water hose blew up. I lost all the water. That didn't matter because the engine didn't have any power anyway. This is your first time to race in the 500. What do you think of it? Not much. You plan on coming back? No. Not coming back. Thank you very much. Now back to the tower and sit. Luke, his comment doesn't surprise us. Lynn and I were talking about this before. Jochen, when quoted all month, is not enjoying this race here. And this happens sometimes. After all, there are some racetracks that some people take to and some they don't. Even some of our championship drivers in America 
at certain tracks they didn't like. And for some reason, Jochen from Vienna has not enjoyed his stay here and didn't fare very well, but we hope he does come back. And guess what, Sid? It was not long after that apparently Jochen Ritt must have changed his mind because this was 1968. And our first qualification effort of this day now underway. On the track, moving down into the number one turn, low by the white line, now beginning a controlled drift or slide up toward the wall of the short chute in the south end of this track. Jochen Rent dimping already now into the number two turn, moving through it, and now Rent safely through that turn, his flashing down for high speed along the back stretch. In the car, Jochen Rent, a man who said last year, after a great deal of difficulty in attempting to qualify for this race, it wasn't to his liking and he would not be back. Since that time, Rent has made contract arrangement with Jack Brabham for the Formula One competition. It was, as Rent explained it, a natural outgrowth then when he learned that Brabham himself was setting his sights on entering the 500 this year, that he, Rent, would be his driver. Brabham's car moving down now, Joachim Rent in the cockpit, and here's the first full lap of a qualification run turned at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway today. That's the first full lap, full record that has been run here today. And it turns out that the 1968 race didn't necessarily go any better for Joachim Rent. He got five laps in before Piston knocked him out of the race, but he did come back and return to the Indy 500. Returning on this program, of course, he is always welcome to do so. He is the historian, I would say emeritus, but no, he is no. the only historian. Jake? Uh, yes, sir. We have to we have to break down a little bit, though, real quick about Jakin Rint's interview, about why it's so great. So we have a couple quick things. A, his utter disdain for, for the place and the fact that he's willing to say it out loud, I, I think it's just fascinating. And, and B, I don't think we give Sid enough credit Sid has the opportunity to basically, you know, kind of toe the company line a little bit, right? And and he does it. Sid just basically says, yep, there are people who come here and they love it. And there's people that come here and absolutely can't stand the place. And Yakin's one of them. So I think we need to give Sid a little bit of credit because Sid could have, you know, he could have maybe towed the company line there a little bit. And, and instead, Sid just basically said, yep. We all have heard all month that Yakin doesn't like the place, and, and there it all is for you right there in, in a quick 20-second interview. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to ask Donald, because Donald, as we bring Donald Davidson in, um, that was kind of where I was going with that in the fact that some drivers come in, and, and I think, and, and we see it even today, Donald, some drivers come in and just immediately get a feel for the place. Very few drivers come in, get a feel for it, and don't like it, and don't then come back and, and reacclimate, if you will, and kind of grow. Like Dario Franchitti comes to mind. I'm not saying he didn't have a feel for it, but Dario will tell you that early on he didn't necessarily fully grasp what it was. And then, of course, when he won, I remember him saying, you know, I understand everything now. What was Rent's opinion or, or reaction to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway once he did return in 68? I don't think Rint ever wanted to come here, and I always thought that was very sad. What was happening there was um, for, a, a, for a brief period, there was this tremendous competition between Firestone and Goodyear, and they were spending all kinds of money. Uh, the, the rear engine thing had caught on, and they thought they needed to get the best drivers here at Indianapolis to drive the rear engine cars, and the, the, the drivers with the experience were the Grand Prix drivers. And over the years, there had been people that came because they wanted to. 
Fangio came because he wanted to. Farina came because he wanted to. Um, Brabham, I think that was as much John Cooper, but that was the thing where Roger Ward had befriended both of them and said, why don't you come and run Indianapolis? Because he thought that the lightweight rear-engine car would have an advantage. So Roger Ward was a major part of that taking place. In fact, when they came to run the, the test in October of 60, Ward set up the test <laughs> and even drove the car. And I think Brabham even stayed at his house or certainly visited him there. But then we come to uh, the Lotuses coming in 1963. That was Dan Gurney, got Colin Chapman and Ford Motor Company together. I don't think it was Jim Clark's choice to come, but I think the thing grew on him. I think uh, uh, Graham Hill came because he wanted to. He came in 1963 to drive for Mickey Thompson. He didn't stay around very long, but I think that was his choice. But we get to 66, 67, and now the tire companies are heavily involved, and a number of drivers were under contract, and part of the contract was that they had to come to Indianapolis. And I can give you the prime story um, that, that, that I, I was working at USAC, and I thought if Jochen Rint doesn't want to come here, he, you know, I, th I wish that there could be something in the uh, as part of when you take the physical that there is a um, some sort of a test that you take to to show your 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 passion for driving here, and if you don't want to drive here, you know Ronnie Duman and Sam Sessions and and Carl Williams do want to drive here, and so anyway, in um, long story here, but um, I think this will illustrate the point. So in October of 1966, I'm working at USAC. And right after the U.S. Grand Prix, on either Monday or maybe Tuesday after the Grand Prix, Watkins Glen, George R. Bryant, nothing to do with Bryant hitting and calling, but George R. Bryant, who entered cars uh, for a short time and uh, was briefly the stepfather of Mashton Gregory, he comes into the USAC office. The three of them come in, George Bryant, Chris Amon, and Dennis Holm. And... George Bryant was attempting to get the two of them on his team for 1967, and he came into the USAC office to meet Henry Bank. So I met Chris Simon. Uh, he was very quiet, didn't have much to say. Dennis Holm was sort of rather interested in what I was doing, and, and so then uh, off they go. So then the following spring, the entries are coming in, and Dennis Holm is going to drive for Smokey Eunuch. Not George Bryant. Chris Simon drove for George Bryant. So uh, when they come here, I hooked up with, with Dennis Holm, and he remembered the conversation and coming to USAC. And I said, I said, I was really surprised to see that you're going to drive a smoky eunuch. I said, how the two, did the two of you get together? Because I can't believe that the two of you had even heard of each other. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I heard, hadn't uh, heard of Smokey Eunuch. Eunuch knew who Holm was. Anyway, so he said, how I first learned that I was going to be doing this for Smokey Eunuch, he said, I read about it in Autosport. And he said, I picked up my copy of Autosport, and in late news, it said, I'm going to drive for Smokey Eunuch. And he said, I knew I was going to drive at Indianapolis because I was under contract to Goodyear, but I didn't know 
for whom I was going to drive. He said, a couple of days later, I get a telegram telling me, report to garage such and such a thing, Smoky Unix. So he said, I show up, go in the garage, and say, uh, excuse me, is Smoky Unix in here? Yes, that's him over there. He went, uh, uh, Mr. Unix, I'm Dennis Holm. I'm your driver. And uh, that's how it was done for a brief time. And so back onto Yock and Rent, he came and just did did not care for the place. Some of the others did, and I'm j- jumping around a little bit. And once again, forgive the passion. But uh, Dennis Holm finished fourth in his first year, and then fourth the second year, and then I think it was about the third year. And uh, I remember him saying as he was interviewed after the race was over, he said, I'm starting to like the place. And But uh, Rent clearly didn't like it. And um, he came back the next year because he was driving for Jack Brabham and he in in in, uh, in, in Europe, and so he was contracted. And uh, the car, the the uh, Repco Brabham qualified. It did five laps, but I think he did like three laps. Came in, st- was at the pits for for quite a while, many 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 minutes. Went out, took two more. And then he left on his way to the airport, and I remember him walking down the pit lane with this huge grin on his face. And then he did come back again the next year um, on the the, uh, the the STP four-wheel drive Lotus team when it was Mario, Graham Hill, and Jochen Rint, and none of the cars made the race. Anyway, um, Rint clearly didn't want to be here. And again, I'll just say that, you know, I was at USAC and I saw these fellows just, you know, busting their butts and their whole life, everything that they were drawing, you know, the sprints and midgets and all the dirt track racing and everything. And that was so they could have the opportunity to drive in the Indianapolis 500. And I thought, what a shame, briefly, that they were prevented from doing it because of people like Yock and Rint that really didn't, if he didn't want to be here, that's fine. But what a shame that he was taking up a car. That didn't last for very long. Um, in By 69, that had scaled back quite a bit. I, I think the height of that uh, scenario that I was describing there where drivers were told, you know, either Firestone or Goodyear, you know, go to Indianapolis, go to Grove, so-and-so, you're going to be driving for so-and-so. Really, 67 and a little bit of 68, and then uh, that uh, came to an end so, and of course so a long answer but you knew that was going to happen well of course right then you're on the heels then of you know mario andretti winning the race in 69 but before we get to to talking about that or even moving that way donald when we come back i want to ask you about one of the big challenges aside from just getting acclimated in terms like yak and rent of, of enjoying the place one of the things that might have actually been an advantage for some of the gentlemen that you're talking about that were ironically maybe left out because of this influx from the tire companies of different drivers coming over so we'll get to that and we'll do it in just over two minutes here on beyond the bricks the indiana union construction industry remains focused on getting the job done and keeping our communities running we all look forward to getting back on track For over 100 years, our contractors and skilled tradesmen and women built and maintained Indiana's hospitals, highways, bridges, schools, and utilities, essential infrastructure that keeps our state moving forward during all conditions. 
And with safety as a top priority, we're ready for whatever it takes to rebuild our economy. We built Indiana's past. We'll be there to build Indiana's future. Indiana Union Construction Industry. Value on display every day. This is Representative Jerome Stanford with the Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio Regional Council of Carpenters. With an innovative training center, state-of-the-art facility, and an excellent apprenticeship program, the Indiana Carpenters Union is producing the most efficient, productive, and professional carpenters, millwrights, and floor coverers in the industry. Skilled on principle, union by choice. My grades were bad. I would, like, get D's and C's. I appeared to be doing good at my school life, but if you would see me at home, it would have been a completely different story. I mean, it was just rough focusing on school when your mother is somebody you have to take care of. It just, it got worse and worse and worse throughout the years. There are students who need somebody. They can trust someone, and it could be the first person they've ever trusted in their life. Communities and Schools is lowering America's dropout rate by helping more than 1.3 million kids every year get whatever they need to succeed in school. If something was going on at home, we would go just stop by Miss Liberty's office and talk to her. Communities and Schools vouched for me when everyone else had lost hope. You can help change the picture of education right here in your community and across the nation. Visit communitiesandschools.org. I hear people say we can't save every kid, but I think that we can. Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson, Brad Huber running the big board for us. Donald Davidson joining us tonight on Beyond the Bricks. Donald, I'm going to ask, you've been doing these shows for a couple of years, Donald. So I'm assuming that you've probably taken, how many questions would you guess that you have fielded over the course of your career on the radio, Donald? Oh, golly, I have no idea. A thousand? Oh, I, I really have no idea, because I know sometimes we've done a one-hour show and I only had four questions because my answers were so long. Well, no, I, I would have no idea. Uh, okay, this is going to be the dumbest of any of them that you have received. No, okay? oh, I don't think so. <laughs> when we're talking about drivers that were coming over, you know, what from Formula One primarily, as yes. uh, you know, in this topic, how many of them throughout their racing careers in Europe, had ever been in races prior to Indianapolis where they were only turning left? Oh, uh, no. For many of them, it was a brand-new experience. Right. So, you know, it really is pretty amazing. I, you know, admittedly back then, though, you had a much longer month of practice, and I would assume for some of them, you know, the practice had to be as, as critical to them as even the race just to get acclimated, right, to the actual oval itself because that had to be i would imagine that had to be just an incredibly intimidating beast even though many of them may not have admitted i mean because well several things here uh there was a lot of practice time but there was no rule that said that you had to be here every day if you wanted to show up on the first you know the first day of qualifying and go out fine the track was available to you and so those that wanted to become familiar with it would run a lot of laps Maston Gregory, who was an American that drove Formula One and, and so was a Grand Prix driver when he came here, he told me, he said, Indianapolis is the easiest track that we run on, and that makes it the hardest because you have to be so precise. But uh, just, um, um, but I think m- many of them wanted to. 
a little bit later. I mean, when you think of the different, as I say, Fangio came because he wanted to. It didn't work out very well. Farina wanted to. You know, Fernando Alonso, that, that wasn't a bunch of contracts. I mean, there were contracts involved, but he came because he wanted it. Whereas some of the others, it was very casual. But but there were many that did not. I mean, I think Lauda, Nicky Lauda, apparently was interested in coming. And um, Danny Sullivan told me that after he won Indianapolis and um, he went to Detroit for there were the, when there was the Formula One race through the streets of Detroit, and he ran into Alan Post, whom he knew well. And Post said, you know, he saw the he saw the ring on the hand, and he said, "Let me see your ring." And uh, with the, with the you know the Bardark thing with the with the checkered flags on either side, so Prost is examining the ring, and that's what Sullivan told me. And he said, he said, you know what? He said, I would trade several Grand Prix for one of these. And Sullivan said. Well, you know what you have to do to get one, don't you? And uh, it, I always thought that it was a shame, and I, I continue to think that it's a shame, that the, the the great drivers who would like to have run Indianapolis and didn't for whatever it was, conflicts or, or you know whatever it was, wouldn't it be great if everybody that wanted to, that had the skills, of course, would be able to? PK came. Uh, that that was a huge disappointment because he had the big crash, and uh, but and then but then he came back the next year and uh, and and really didn't have much of a race. So you know nobody really remembers that. They remember him having the accident. I think I think a lot of people don't realize he came back and ran in the race. Well, he did that. I I think he was probably interested in it, and certainly John you know Menard probably paid him a lot of money to come. Record Sony came. In 77, that didn't work out very well. I was in the race, but it was a bit of a disappointment. But I think he was curious and wanted to do it. And it would be interesting to know the others that had really thought, I'd like to do that. And what a shame that they couldn't have, like Prost, for instance. (laughs) So I don't know that I answered your question. You know, uh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, Donald, I think, I think James Hunt would have been another guy who would have been interested in doing it. I mean, I know he did come here did, yes. uh, in not a in a not in any kind of racing capacity, obviously, but I think he would have been another person interested in in running the race, certainly. Well, you know what, Fittipaldi. Here's here's the thing. Fittipaldi came in 1974, not 84, 74, right after the. Um, the the Grand Prix at Watkins Glen, Fittipaldi was it was the last Grand Prix of the year, and '74 he, let's see, yeah, he won the title, and then he came down here, and uh, like on Tuesday and Wednesday, and he drove for McLaren. He drove Johnny Rutherford's number three with the golf sponsorship on it. Everybody thought he was going to come back the next year, and then it ended up that he didn't. It was years before he did. But, you know, why did he come? Because he wanted, you know, he'd seen the movies of it when he was a little boy in Brazil and, and knew about it and wanted to come, just like, just like Fancio did. Um, I still don't know that I answered your question, but I'm just thinking about the, the, the ones that, that 
wanted to do it and came, and, and sometimes it was a disappointment. Total number of world champions, and uh, Jake and I were talking about this earlier today, isn't it something like 14 or 15 different world champions came here, they didn't all make it, and of course that would include uh, Mario, but of the people that, that um, you know were actually you know, European or South American, Grand Prix driver that actually came here and drove in the 500. You know, you know Mansell drove, and, and uh, I think Holm was one that a lot I of think, Donald, there yeah. were, I think it's safe to say that of drivers who have both won a Formula One World Championship and been on the grounds of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with possibility of driving, there would be 15 individuals, 13 of which actually made a start, but okay. not all of them as we know, not all of them made a start as a Formula One world champion. Well, I shouldn't say that because Villeneuve actually came back after he had won a Formula he One did, world yes. championship. But, you know, there are variations, of course, in, in the the years of which came first. But right. uh, 13, I think, is the number that we can say, that, which is amazing. I mean, that's an amazing statistic. Yeah, because John Surtees never came in May. It, there was two different years that he was going to drive, but he did actually run in a tire test at least once, maybe twice. The other question I have for you, Donald, I know you know that I am an unabashed, you know, devotee of Jochenrent. You know I'm a huge Jochenrent fan. Yes. The question I have for you is do you miss when we, you and I worked together and I would leave pranks on your desk of Jochenrent material just to <laughs> see if you would be upset about that? Well, you know what? I tell you, I was very surprised because when those, when the, all of a sudden there was sort of like a brace of them coming, and I tried to figure out who would make a, a decent Indianapolis driver, and and I thought that Graham Hill. I didn't see him being successful at Indianapolis because I thought Graham Hill was a very methodical strategist on road courses, and I thought that the speed. The pure speed would be difficult for him. I don't not to say that he wasn't going to make the race, but I thought when but Jochen Rint, I thought Rint would be going for the pole. And um, you and know you what, also, a, I think what a, what a I surprise think you... that was. I just thought Rint would be a fantastic qualifier because his reputation was that you know he was like a Bobby Unser, Tom Sneva, ten tenths every lap type of a driver. And I think you told me that you were surprised one time. I think you told me this that you were surprised that Chris Amon never took to the to the speedway exactly. at all. Exactly, that was a huge surprise. Um, if, 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 golly, he you know he was here in uh, in '67, and then then he came back in '70, the first year for um, uh, for the for, for McLaren to come. It, it was Dennis Holm and Chris Amon, and then. Uh, uh, Dennis Holm had the the problem in practice where the the uh, some fuel got sucked into the cockpit and his hands got burned and he had to bail out, and Chris Amon was stuck at 162, and I remember this day when when um, they needed to fill the the home seat, and Amon was really struggling, and so they came out on a practice day. It was right around lunchtime on on like a Wednesday or something, and they had. Uh, Peter Revson and Carl Williams, and I—I I think that uh, Revson went out first. Uh, Amon was stuck at 162. Uh, Revson went out and ran about four, five, six laps, 
and got to 166. And then Carl Williams, who had a reputation and and well-deserved for being able to get up to speed in a hurry, he got in, and I think he ran like six laps, and he got to 167. And then um, Amon got back in, 162, left, and went to the airport. And apparently... And this this is the thing that didn't make any sense to me or anybody that there you know, was around was that Amon apparently did not like the idea of having to go out to the wall. He knew what the groove was. It was necessary to you know to come to hit the apex of turn one and then go out very close to the wall. And he did not want to do that. Well, that's quite understandable. But then. Days later, the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps, not the version they run now, but the full, you know, I think like an eight-and-a-half-mile, you know, downhill and over a bridge and 150-mile-an-hour straightaways and and more. And he and uh, Pedro Rodriguez had a terrific battle for the lead. Neither one of them could, could manage Indianapolis, but they went to Spa-Francorchamps, and they're racing back and forth, back and forth, you know, 150, 160, 170 miles an hour straightaways. Just insane. And you think, Kelly, Spa doesn't scare you, but you didn't want to run next to the wall at Indianapolis. It was just one of those things where he couldn't bring himself to be able to do that. If you were to go through, and oftentimes I've done it, the media guides of some of the modern drivers that drive an IndyCar, many of them are asked their racing hero, and many of them mention a driver that, although I think it's fairly well known, there are those that may not know, actually himself tested in one of the cars, but does that mean that he too was on the path to run the Indy 500? I'll tell you who we're talking about, and we'll discuss whether or not he might have come here when we continue the conversation and round things out of turn four here on Beyond the Bricks. Big Joe here. Stay tuned for All American Heroes, a look at military history at the track brought to you by HeroLoan.com. The VA loan is one of the best benefits of being in the military. The problem has been that most VA lenders don't really care about their customers or the level of service that they provide. At HeroLoan.com, we want to earn your business. We pay for the appraisal and can close your VA loan in as little as 14 days. Get the loan you deserve and apply online today at HeroLoan.com. The only way to VA. NMLS number 1326-241. This is Jake Query of IndyCar Radio. The Speedway hosted the 821st Aero Repair Squadron that provided service and repair to aircraft flying within the United States during World War I. It was stationed on Speedway grounds, which was closed to racing during the war. The squadron was in New York awaiting embarkation to France when the armistice with Germany was signed in November of 1918. HeroLoan.com, the only way to VA. Hi, I'm Arielle Winter. If you're anything like me, your pets are not only your best friends, they're part of your family. American Humane, which has been rescuing animals like Cleo here for more than 100 years, has life-saving tips that can make a big difference before, during, and after disasters such as hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, or wildfires. So when disaster strikes, you want to be prepared to protect them. Be sure to microchip or tag your pets. Never leave them behind in a major crisis, and be sure to have an emergency kit ready in your home at all times with a pet crate or carrier, leash, blanket, ID, and medications 
their water bowl, and seven to 10 days worth of food. To find out how to protect your entire family during a disaster and help our best friends in their worst times, please visit AmericanHumane.org. Back here on Beyond the Bricks, Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson, Donald Davidson, Brad Huber in with us, talking about drivers who have come over from various parts of the world to run the Indianapolis 500. And I know that one of the most beloved drivers, really, you know, whether you talk to drivers from today or even his contemporaries, I guess, but Ayrton Senna is, is held in such a highlight in terms, of, and for good reason, in terms of his racing career. Donald, I think most people are aware of the fact that in December of 1992, Ayrton Senna tested a car for Roger Penske that yes. I think ultimately ended up being the ride that Emerson Fittipaldi ended up with with Roger Penske. But I've never known this, and I don't know you know, who you've talked to or how much you've learned of this. That was, let's say, publicity stunt, quote-unquote, or that was something that was fairly legitimate and had his life not tragically ended early was there the possibility that Senna may have ended up in the Indy 500 at some point? All right. Well, first of all, Fittipaldi was already with Penske, and Fittipaldi pretty much made it happen. Okay. Senna uh, was having a contractual – there was a situation with the engine manufacturer, and there was some doubt as to whether he was going to run again in 93. And Fittipaldi said, why don't you come and run at Indianapolis because Mario's there, I'm going to be there, Mansell's coming. Why don't you come? There'll be four world champions. And so they went to um, Phoenix to Firebird Raceway. And I didn't know if it was December, but I know that, yeah, okay, well, anyway, there's footage of it. And so um, Fittipaldi set the thing up, to, to the best of my knowledge, and then they showed up together, and it was this little tiny rental car i don't know what it was but i mean it was like a mini rental car and they showed up with fittipaldi driving in the driver's uniform and santa passenger in the uniform there was nobody with them and they got out and uh, i will say that an, an insider at penske uh, told me that they were not very happy about the fact this was happening because they were at firebird raceway and they had a lot of things that they wanted to test on the cars, and they didn't, you know, they weren't that necessarily crazy about having a driver become familiar with with the equipment. And that thing, that feeling changed very quickly when Senna just took to it like a like a duck to water. Now, this was Firebird Raceway, which is over. It, it it's it's sort of way west of the city. And uh, they tested there for a day, and then the next day they went to, to the to the the Oval, which is over on. I'm sorry, I, I should say it's, it was east of Phoenix. Firebird is east of Phoenix, and then the uh, the Oval is is west. So then the next day they went there, and for whatever reason, Sena decided not to drive. He watched. And I guess he was all over the place and spectating and asking a lot of questions. I don't know that he got in a car. I know he didn't turn a lap, or to the best of my knowledge, he didn't. And then very shortly after that, then the 
the contractual situation in Formula One was resolved, and so he ended up going back to Formula One. But um, anyway, there, there is footage of it, and in fact, there's, there's an interview which is done in Portuguese, which is interesting. And when Fittipaldi uh, uh, and Senna are standing together, and there's clearly a, a, a huge um, amount of affection between the two. And in that, that, I mean, they, they just clearly, I, I, I would imagine Fittipaldi was probably a hero to Senna, I'm guessing that, since he was so many years ahead of him in, in, in Formula One. But the camaraderie between the two is just fantastic. And, and uh, again, I just love the idea that there was no huge procession and entourage when they arrived. They just showed up in this little rental car with just the two of them in it. Now, and that's the story. I, to my knowledge, Senna never came to the track. How much of a buzz did it create then, Donald, or did it? How much did what now? How much of a buzz did it create then? I mean, retroactively, you know, people think, "Oh my goodness!" Like, and you're right. I mean, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Obviously, it was fit a party like closed uh, well, the deal late. That, uh, th- there was a couple of there was some a little bit of media out there in that Portuguese uh, uh, d- d- uh, interview. I don't remember very much about it at all. In fact, I don't even know that I just sort of barely knew about it. I mean, it wasn't like. When Mansell showed up at Phoenix and then ultimately Indianapolis, which was massive, that was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen. When uh, Mansell went to Phoenix, and I think they had like a hundred journalists show up just to uh, uh, just to cover him doing the task there. That that was massive. I've never seen anything like that. In reading motorsport did a column on the Senna test um, that said that he had gone out and done 14 laps at a best lap of 49.5 seconds, which was just slightly faster than Fittipaldi. But Fittipaldi went out, and apparently the track was – it was – you know, the conditions were different when Fittipaldi had gone out earlier. So the, the times, I guess, kind of translated to one another. You can't necessarily make a whole lot, Donald, you know what I mean, off of – because it was too t- – we know from Indianapolis – that's the one thing about IMS that amazes me when I talk to drivers. They will tell you, Donald, that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, in the course of a four-lap qualifying effort, can be a completely different track from yes. lap one to lap two to lap three to lap four, depending on the wind and noticeably, and probably most so, the sun, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Mario Andretti coming over as well, and then ultimately winning it in 1969, and this is maybe something we'll... we'll get more into later let's say next week but mario when we look at it now okay some you know obviously 50 years after the fact you look at it and you say wow like that mario andretti winning the indianapolis 500 he is the most accomplished or versatile or one of them certainly race car drivers of all time at the time which would you say more cemented Mario as this world icon, the 69-500 win Donald, or was it also going and winning and ultimately becoming a Formula One champion in 78? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I don't know how to answer that because, you know, he won the Daytona 500 and shared the winning car in the 12 hours of Sebring, like, a you know, just a matter of a few weeks apart, and then, comes and he's on the pole at Indianapolis. Um, 
I don't know how to answer. That's a very good question because I mean, he grew up as a little boy, you know, with the with the, the Grand Prix drivers as his idol. But he comes over as a kid, so all of his racing was in this country, and he was an American citizen <laughs> by the time he came to Indianapolis. And so it was sort of, um, boy, I mean, just just uh, he. Winning the Rookie of the Year in 65 was huge. I mean, he was already well-known when he came. I mean, it was one of the—so— and then when he you know, he won the two championships, so he was already well-established, had won Indianapolis—well, um, he, he was very, very versatile, had won in a lot of areas before he— and then when he went to, he went to Watkins Glen— and um, and drove for Lotus and won the pole. And everybody, you know, said, well, you know, that's his home track. He's an American, you know, American citizen now, and, and he's at his home track. He'd never been to Watkins Glen. When he went there in 1968 and sat on the pole for the U.S. Grand Prix in in uh, in 68, he'd never seen the place. And then... Uh, but certainly winning the world championship in 78 i mean he he ran well in in 77 and even 76 the famous uh the famous final the, the, you know the great story between uh, Lauder and and Hunt and and uh Lauder came in because he'd recovered from these terrible injuries at the Nürburgring and then uh uh it poured with rain. He could have won the world championship, but he came in after four laps and said no, or three laps and said, I'm not going to do it. And then Hunt finished third in the race and, and won the world championship. Oh, by the way, it was won by Mario Andretti in 76. And then, uh, so, I mean, he was already well established before he won the world championship. And that just sort of like maybe cemented him as just one of the greats of all time. And, uh, to me, you know, I, there's, 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 of all of the versatile drivers, I don't know. I think Mario is the standout because of the areas where he went that other drivers did not, and won. So, um, hello. <laughs> yeah, Donald. Sorry. Uh, let me ask you this, Donald. Um, yeah. Lastly, in the last two minutes here. Um, one guy that I had an appreciation for, and I don't know much about him in terms of his driving overseas, but I remember you telling me this, and I wanted you in the last two minutes here to recap it. The thing about John Alacy, who really struggled in terms of on-track yes. performance when he came back to Indianapolis, yes. that I thought was very endearing is um, he absolutely soaked in and loved the tradition of the yes. Indy 500. Yeah, I was very sorry that that happened. He was black flagged, and, and I thought, what a great shame. What, and what a gentleman. Uh, he went to the rookie lunch, the fastest rookie lunch, and um, he already knew what the story was, that, that they were not running fast and that he was probably going to be black flagged in the, in the opening laps. He came to the, to the, to the luncheon. Uh, he sat at the—I I happened to sit at his table, which was a real delight, and he was a gentleman, and he got up. Uh, when uh, when everybody was seated, he got up and walked around and shook hands with everybody at the table, 
and uh, did the, uh, you know, the milk toast and it just posed for photographs and everything. And I thought, what a shame. I was so sorry that that, uh, that, that was, um, you know, that they ruled it that way, that he and Simona de Silvestro, they, they were black flagged very early. And I thought, good Lord, you know, that they, they probably, he could have probably bought it home and had a decent finish and he would know how to stay out of the the, the way, I mean, he was a world-class driver. He wasn't going to get into anybody's way. And they actually got black flagged. Uh, what was it, like the 110% rule or something like that? And they weren't even close to being lapped when they when they both had to come in. I thought that was a great shame. But um, anyway. Um, that was, by the way, the, the 2012 race. Uh, yeah. 2012, when John Lacey was nine laps. Simona Di Silvestro, 10 yeah. laps. They were both black flagged yeah. under quote-unquote. Just, just an absolute gentleman, though. Candy. I mean, he was so gracious to everybody at the table that he didn't know anybody. And uh, what a just, a just a gentleman. Donald, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you sometime next week, all right? All right, thank you. I right, appreciate it. Donald Davidson, the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike Thompson. Uh, tomorrow night, by the way, things like um, Beard Papa's Pipe and Hot Cream Puff Special. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's one of just a ton we're going to get into. Good car names tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, Beyond the Bricks. You know, many people my age who went to college, they'll do something great in the future. But I'm doing something great now. If you like seeing what you accomplish every day, why not make that your career instead of a desk job? I know a lot of people without any direction. Well, my direction is up while I help build this high rise. Your training is free. So you learn while you earn. My friends finished their degree in four years. That's about what it took for us to finish laying down about a dozen new roads. Careers as a union laborer are rewarding and ready now. As a member of Laborers Local 120, you'll earn good pay and benefits with lots of job choices. I do pipeline work. I'm a concrete finisher. I lay miles and miles of asphalt. This is Ward Daniels, business manager of Labor's Local 120. Joining us can lead to a satisfying career for you or someone you know. So join us. Join us. Join us. We are now accepting qualified apprentices and journeymen. Visit LionaBuildsIndiana.org to apply. Were you born from 1945 to 1965?